on Thursday morning and also on Wednesday night, uh, we uh, remember the life of Palmer Holm who uh, passed away the week before and went to be with the Lord at age 87. Uh, if you were able to make it out to one of those services, we just want to say thank you once again uh, for that. For my part, the last two weeks have provided uh, great opportunity to be able to reflect and think back on many of the conversations I've had with Palmer. And I've shared many of them with you uh, over that Wednesday, Thursday time, except for one. And, and I wanted to save that for this morning. One of the continued themes that uh, during the share, the prayer, which is really a share service that we had, was how much Palmer talked about how he was ready to go home. He talked about that all the time. And some of his family members talked about how he would do that during inconvenient times, but he would still tell them, I'm ready to go. There was no mistaking it. That was his eager expectation. Uh, there was another eager expectation that he shared with me, and I hope that he shared it with many of you. And um, it, his hope was, it had to do with Bethesda Church. Uh, there were many times where we would be in conversation, and he would just look at me and he would say, I just believe God's about to do something at Bethesda. Like, Bethesda was on the verge of something great. God was going to do something here. I just believe that Bethesda is in a new chapter, and God is about to do something. And I just, as I thought about that, I mean, that'll encourage you as a pastor. You know, someone says, I just believe God's, something great is about to happen. And I go, I want to know what that is. That sounds awesome. That sounds really good. And I just happened to think to myself, what does having an eager expectation like that, what does that do to a person? Here's what it does. When you have an eager expectation that God is about to move, you become more aware of your surroundings, right? You start paying attention to what is happening around you. You have a keen eye to be on the lookout with hope that God is about to move. Is it that thing? Is it that, is it that, that moment that might spark something here? You're more aware of your surroundings. I think you also, you begin doing your part to get ready. You set your priorities differently. The things that didn't matter as much might be, matter more. The things that matter more right now matter less. And you say, Lord, let me this year not take what you have given me and put it in the dirt. Let me not waste it, but instead, like what was said last week, let me use it gifts, talents, whatever, let me use them for your name to your full, to their full attention, to their full potential, pardon me. And so my hope is that we would have an eager expectation, an eager hope. You have to pardon me this morning. I'm used to seeing Palmer right over there. And uh, I've done a good, I think I've done an okay job this week keeping it together. It's very inconvenient when it, when it hits you right before the sermon. Uh, and so here I am. I miss my friend. But what I'm trying to tell you is how much I just love hearing about how much he loved Bethesda and how he just believed that Bethesda's best days were ahead. And I can't help but wonder if maybe the Lord in his sovereignty, maybe what he's been doing is he's been using you and I well before I got here even over this last year and a half, maybe 
Maybe our job has been to be like Elijah, to go to the, go to the, go to the mountain against the enemy, put the firewood where it's supposed to, and then let the Lord do what seems right to him. And so we can manufacture absolutely nothing here at Bethesda. We can manufacture no salvations, no genuine worship, no genuine transformation or discipleship, but that is what the Lord can do, and only he can do that alone. And so my hope is that there would be more of us who would be like a Palmer home who would go, I just believe God would do something. Do you pray for revival in our city? Do you, do you pray that revival would happen? Some of you have told me about in decades gone by about how such and such person came to town and he preached all week and man, things, things transformed. Man, if the Lord has already been in the business of bringing a revival, why couldn't he do the same thing in our midst this year? And so I would ask you with our friend who has gone before us, that we would have a humility to surrender, that we would be a kind of people that, that ache for a revival in our midst, and we would be released of the shackles of pride, plans, and preferences. But in humility, say, Lord, what do you want to do in our midst? How do you want us to repent? How do you want us to surrender? How do you want to bring back the prodigals? How do you want to heal the brokenhearted, set the captives free? And would you do it, Lord, to glorify your name and here on as it already is being done in heaven? Man. I have no segue from that into the sermon this morning. I just wanted to share that with you. What a posture we ought to have as we enter into the new year. Here's my clunky segue now. And so as we transition into the new year, I'd like us to begin at the first book of the Bible. Would you turn to Genesis 1? If you don't know where Genesis is, take a pew Bible in front of you and go to page 1, and we'll be right there. Over the last three months and conversations I've had with various people, things that I've witnessed through some of the needs I've seen of some of our people here, parents and what they're navigating, our youth and what they're navigating, I've been prompted to the, look at the first three chapters of Genesis, went to a conference about October and listened to some speakers and I thought, man, I look forward to the day where we'll be able to share some things that are going on in the culture and how the Bible will be able to address them. And I, I walked up to one of the speakers after he was done talking about a very sensitive subject, and I said, I'm an expository preacher. I like going through books of the Bible. I just got done doing a sermon series that was very topical. I need to go walk through text. What do you recommend? And he says, Genesis 1 through 3. Creation. What it means to be made in the image of God. What it means to be made man and woman. Fall, the fall of humanity, how we got in this mess, redemption, how the one who will crush the head of the serpent will make all things right. There is so much in Genesis 1 through 3, in the midst of a world that seems to be going mad, in what very well may turn out to be a very turbulent election year that we might witness. Man, it's so important, I believe, for us to return back to the basics, the foundation, the, where the pillars of our theology and our convictions start, and that is Genesis. Genesis is a book about origins. It was not originally written to you and I. It was written to the Israelites to answer the question, how did we get here? Where are we coming from? How did this all get started? 
And so there's all sorts of topics here. If you want to answer the question, where does sin come from? You're going to find it here. If you want to answer the question, how does God create everything? You'll see it in Genesis 1 and 2. Things like marriage, first institution, all of that is right here. And so let us begin at the beginning of all beginnings. Genesis 1, 1, read with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Father who is in heaven, Holy Spirit, we draw near to you right now, and we confess that for so many of us in here, the idea of you being the creator is old hat. That is familiar, and so it has little meaning, little bearing on how we live our lives. And yet, Lord, we are also people who, though we know things to be true, may not take them seriously, and other spheres of our life, Lord, we confess that we are a people who find ourselves not satisfied so many times. We are the kind of people that look at our own lives and say, is there something more? We might even be Christians in this place doing that, Lord, saying, Lord, I should have more joy than I do. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to see the value of seeing you as creator, the Lord of our life, and the line that goes directly to our joy in Jesus Christ. Our fulfillment in who you are, Lord, show us what it means that you're the creator, what that means for our lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen. And so those first words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so in these ancient words from the Hebrew scriptures, we're introduced to a being that was there at the start of time, at the start of history, at the start of everything that will ever exist. Before creation was, he was. But who is he? This is why I'm thankful for Christmas. I'm thankful if you were with us during our Advent season. It was quite intentional that we would go through John 1 before we hit Genesis 1. What have I been quoting to you for a purpose, ad nauseum, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now see the connection and how it works right here, how John is playing on Genesis 1, 1. Genesis 1, do you see anything about Jesus? I don't see his name right there, but I do in John, and that raises this point. He was in the beginning with God. I want us to look at this passage before us. Here's something that I know, and that if you've been around church for any length of time, Genesis 1 has some interpretive issues. Actually, the problem isn't with Genesis 1. The problem is with us. Uh, Genesis 1 is quite clear in what it means to say, but we need to make sure that we have the right tools in our tool belt in how we approach this passage in a way that does justice to it. So I want to give you a few things before, as we get going. I'm really setting the table this morning for the rest of Genesis 1 through 3 so that you would, you would properly and I would properly interpret what is before us. Our approach to reading what is really Israelite 
cosmology. I think the first thing here, when you approach this passage, is that you should read, keep in mind that you're reading the Bible holistically. So Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says this, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven, in earth. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with the thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So does your Bible say that Jesus is involved in creation? Yes or no? Good. Okay. We're on the same page. Excellent. So we know that Jesus is involved in creation, but does Genesis 1 say he's involved in creation? Uh, Okay, right? There's a, word, there's a term I want to give you. It's, it's called progressive revelation. As you read the Bible, you're beginning right here with Genesis 1, you get certain seeds of revelation where God gives you so much. But as the narrative of the, sto- the story of the Bible unfolds, he gives you more. He gives you more light. He sheds light on what he's already said. There's a great picture. Uh, you can look it up online. Just put Bible and cross-references should have had it on the screen, but I don't have it for you this morning. You should go look it up. And it shows the entire timeline of the Bible, and it shows how all of the cross-references work. In fact, you may have a Bible where in the, in the middle, there will be a whole bunch of cross-references. What is that pointing to? It's pointing to how the scriptures describe themselves, that there is one ultimate divine author that stands behind every single human author that we have over a 1,600-year period. One divine author that stands behind the human authors and is the same author of all of Scripture. And so when he says something in one place, and then elsewhere he says something else, you know he's not going to contradict himself because the source is the same. In fact, he's going to be shedding more light over here on what he has already said. And so progressive revelation. Read the Bible holistically. We'll see how important this is in just a moment in verse 2. You'll see it also in verse 26. Let us make man in our own image. What an interesting thing for the one God to say. Perhaps there's something about the triunity of God that the New Testament would shed light on more later. And so here's the point that I'm trying to, to give you first. When you read Genesis... Let the passage that's right in front of you speak first. But also keep in mind that there are other things that, that God in his word says that might shed light on what you have right here. And so the question, is Jesus in Genesis 1? Only if you have Genesis 1, you, would, you, might not, you wouldn't be able to say yes. But knowing that you have John 1 helps you to be able to understand that your Savior Jesus, with His Father and the Spirit, is involved in creation. Creation is a triune work. And God said, verse, you see in verse 3 and, and going forward, we're, we'll look at this more clearly next week. The Father speaks, the Son is the word spoken, and the Spirit is the breath through which the Father speaks His word. And so I would encourage us, read read the Bible holistically. Ask yourself, when you're reading through your New Testament this year, what does it have to say about what we have in front of us? That's the first thing. I think the second thing is make sure that you read Genesis in its actual context. 
we spend so much time, especially, I don't, I don't know what it is about Genesis 1 through 3, actually I have my suspicions, we spend so much time asking questions that the Bible isn't trying to answer, instead of answering the questions that it brings forward itself. Let me give you an example. If you read Genesis 1, 1 through 2, and then you, you go on to the days of creation, what's missing? What's missing here that, that we think is so familiar? What, what's missing here? Do you see anything here about the fall of Satan, right? Is there anything in Genesis, from Genesis 1-1 all the way to 3-1 that says anything before the serpent shows up about Satan and how he falls? You know, Revelation 12 that talks about the great dragon. Jesus says, Jesus, Jesus says himself, right? I saw Satan fall like lightning. Revelation 12 speaks about how a third of the stars fell down. Aaron, are you saying that I should ignore those passages. Didn't you just say a moment ago, I should read the Bible holistically? Yes, yes, I did say that. But what I am saying is that in your attempt to read the Bible holistically, don't force or bend things in the present passage to fit your own interpretation. Let me show you what I mean by this. Some people have looked at verse 1 as God's creation. Look, look at, I need you to look at your Bible to understand what I'm getting at here. As verse 1, as the creation, and then there's this view called the gap theory that says in between verse 1 and 2 is where Satan falls. And so Satan messes everything up, and God has to recreate. Everything is unformed. It's all messed up. And so God has to recreate everything. And so the days of creation are actually a second creation. And this is where I say once again, is that actually the question that the Bible is trying to answer in this verse? No. I would say no. And so I'm pointing this out to you to show you that there have been a plethora of how people have tried to interpret Genesis 1. And I would ask us, stick with the words that are actually being said. Stick with the words that are actually here. Consider the audience as well. Who's the original audience? The original audience is... Israel. So imagine the Israelites having left a polytheistic culture in Egypt, and now you have a startling statement that in the first verse of the Bible, you don't have a multiplicity of gods. You have one God, one God. Old Testament scholars have drawn comparison between other ancient creation myths. One of them uh, if you've ever taken an Old Testament class, you might have heard of the Enuma Elish. It's the Babylonian creation myth. They try to draw parallels with Genesis 1 and its account here. Enuma Elish, if you ever read it, just describes a battle amongst the gods and how uh, out of that battle, uh, it results in the heavens and the earth being made. It's important to have these other ancient Near Eastern context or ways of thinking in mind, as we will do today and also next week, to see how distinct the words we have here are. And so especially when it comes to God, God who is present, presented here is far different than the gods of the ancient Near Eastern uh, cultures. Those gods are more capricious and look more like hum humans with superpowers the God who is here is far greater. The last thing that we should consider 
amongst many other things we could mention, is you got to ask, what does the passage reveal about God? I know that seems obvious, but we are so tempted to make ourselves the central focal point of God's story when He is actually the center of His story. He is the main character in Genesis 1 and not us. So with all that being said, let's go. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God, we are introduced to the, to the main actor of creation. In this moment when God creates the universe, He is standing over it. There is nothing before it. And unlike the ancient gods, this God is free to create as He wills. One of the things that I love is one of the classrooms up here, I think it might be the middle school, the high school classroom, someone, whoever you are, I want you to know I love you. Wherever you are, you have put up all of the attributes of God. There's also another one that's in uh, Billy Sargent's classroom. Pay attention to those attributes of God. One of those that you'll see is that God is free. God did not need to create or, or make you and I, but he freely chose to. He's not dependent on you and I for his own existence. I've pointed this out before. But consider the significance, just for a moment, of thinking about how God is triune, that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect community within the Godhead, and that could have lasted for all eternity if God wanted that. How do you know that somebody is loving? I can't just say I'm a loving guy. You'd have to see how I interact with somebody else. How can I say that I'm gracious or I'm kind or these kinds of attributes? You would have to see how I treat another And yet there's that perfect relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. This is way different than the mere oneness of Allah. How can can you say in Islam that God would be loving? You can only say that if he has another to be able to demonstrate that love towards. He is not triune. He needs his creation to demonstrate who he is and how he acts. Do you see the difference? Our Lord doesn't need creation to be self-sufficient. Every other God does. This God is sovereign. There's no battle that results in the heavens and earth being made. This is a deliberate act of the one God who is choosing to do what he wants, as he will. Even more so, he's making what he makes out of nothing. This is something that the church fathers talked about, scholars have talked about plenty, is that there's this word called ex nihilo, out of nothing, from the Latin. There isn't a pre-existing universe, according to Genesis 1-1, that God forms stuff out of. He speaks it and wills it into existence through his word. And so we're introduced here in verse 1 to a majestic God, powerful God, does what he wants, when he wants And he does it freely. This is an eternal God who, when he speaks creation to existence, he has time in his hands. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 92. And so if that is who God is, who are we in light of these verses? The answer is none of those things. Or none of those things. Man, our, our society is obsessed with constructing self-identity. Things have moved so quickly over the last 10 years. 
10 years ago, if somebody would have walked up to you and said, how do you self-identify? I mean, maybe even five years ago, maybe even last year for some of us. But I know that as I say that, most of us in this room know what I'm talking about. How do you self-identify? What, is, what, a, what a very interesting question to ask. It assumes in the question that you have the right to be able to say who you are. Self-actualization, self-identity, self-description, and yet on the first page of the Bible, we're confronted with the reality that we are not the main characters in the story. He made everything, and he knows what they, all things are useful for. We don't get to choose that. The creator gets to choose that. Perhaps we will be on more firm foundation, I believe, friends, that we'll be on more firm foundation when we begin not with ourselves, but we begin with God. When you begin to understand what you were actually made for, not what you think you were made for. At Bethesda, we often say that Jesus is both the Lord and Savior of our lives. When we baptize someone right here, we don't just say, is it your confession that, confession that Jesus is the Savior of your life? We say that Jesus is both the Lord and Savior of our lives. For some, some of us, it takes a whole lifetime to figure out the difference between those two words. Everyone likes to be saved from bad things. Not, not a lot of us, actually I don't know anybody who just likes to be told what to do. We don't like to be told what to do. We want salvation without accountability. But when you understand the Lord part, you understand the reason he is your Lord is because he is your maker. Don't avoid or don't take lightly the idea that God is the creator. If he is your creator, he is in charge of your life. What he says goes, even if the culture goes a completely different direction. I'm saying these things to you now because I'm setting up what we will be talking about in the weeks to come. We owe him our lives. Now look at verse 2. This is who this God is. Verse 2 the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. If verse 1 tells us who the Creator is, verse 2 gives us the canvas upon which he is about to paint on. Uh, last week, I was, Donnie, I don't know where you're at in here, but we were talking about this yesterday. And we were talking about how I went down the YouTube hole of watching Bob Ross videos. And so if you ever heard of Bob, if you don't know who Bob Ross is, has the, has the, the, the puffy hair, um, uh, Bob, and does the, the, the really soothing voice, the painting videos. And I'd always seen them. I don't know what it was. The guy died in like 94, and he has just made it onto like current TikTok online videos. I don't understand it. Someone will have to explain it to me. But... Uh, I learned that Bob Ross was a, <clears throat> was a former military man, served in the Air Force, served in Alaska, and when he was done uh, serving as a sergeant in the military, uh, he said, I'm never going to raise my voice again, and you can see that in the videos that you watch. And it's probably the most soothing voice that you'll ever hear. It's also inspiring. Bob Ross doesn't just want to sh- paint, he wants you to believe that you can paint yourself. And so... And so you see him going, we're just doing this, we're doing that, and all of a sudden there's a tree, and then, and then there's, there's a, a mountain, and he goes, we're just going to have fun. It's just very relaxed. But what got me, and as I was observing this man in these videos, was how much joy that he had as he's, as he's 
as he's just enjoying himself and, and, and putting this together, making believe that you can too. And I couldn't help but wonder if watching this man make something was a little bit of a, a window into the heart of God. Our Lord has this canvas before him. He's about to create. And he freely chooses to do it for his own glory, which brings him joy. I can't but help, I can't help but wonder how much more maximal joy the Lord has when he creates, as opposed to a man with paint on a canvas. So what does this canvas look like, though? This canvas was without form and void. It's also, we're told, the darkness was over the face of the deep. Without form and void, the Hebrew, tovu vabohu, it rhymes, as you hear, tovu vabohu. And we have an uninhabitable, desolate world. The deep likely refers to, as we're looking at the earth, the deep waters, the oceans, the sea waters, that out of this God is going to make the make the heavens and the earth. He's going to make the firmament. He's going to make the, the land, the creatures that will be in the water and on the earth and in the air. We'll see all of that next week. He is over them and he uses them. There's no battle, once again here, like the ancient Near, near, near Eastern myths. God is deliberate in putting this canvas before him. And we're told that out over the deep, there is the, what is called the Ruach of God that is hovering over the waters. Look at your Bible. It might say spirit. There's other options, though, uh, for this word Ruach. It can be breath, wind, or spirit. So which is it? How do we know? What is it actually that is over the face of the waters, over the face of the deep? Remember what I told you earlier? Read the Bible holistically. I was in an Old Testament class, this was probably, this was 2015, I was in an early Old Testament, I was in an Old Testament class early in the morning, and my Hebrew professor says, this is not talking about the Holy Spirit. That's not what the text says. Don't do that. The Holy Spirit isn't here. A couple hours later, I go to my theology class, and my theology professor goes, I can't help it. I read the Bible holistically. How can I not see the Holy Spirit here? The New Testament gives me more light to understand what is happening right here. And so do you see what I was getting at earlier and how you read this passage and go, don't only read it alone, let it stand on its own terms, but let the rest of the Bible interpret and understand. And so what we have here, when we consider Genesis and further on, think of Exodus 14, 21, when the Israelites are crossing over the Red Sea, when they cross over the Red Sea, the reason why they're able to do so is because the wind of God, the rock of God, separates the waters. Isn't that so familiar to what is happening even right here? He's the Lord over the waters. Psalm 33, 6 speaks about God's role in creation. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host are made. And so whether it's wind, whether it's breath, when we read the Bible holistically, you see that this is kind of in seed form, a clear indications of the presence of God who is about to move. And you and I today would be in our right minds if we are reminded, we can't help but be reminded, how is the presence of God manifest all throughout this earth? It's the Holy Spirit. 
So God's presence is here. His presence is necessary for creation. I've been asking some of our uh, church leaders, people I've been interacting with, a question over the last week, and the question is this. You don't have to answer. I want you to just think about this. Generally, in the United States, Christianity is on the decline, if you don't know that. So the Baptist Convention, which I was a part of before coming into the MB world, has declined by 3 million members over the last 10, 15 years. So generally, it's, it's going down. Question for you. There are two denominations which are going the opposite direction. Every single other one, whether it's Methodist, Baptist, whatever, are on the decline. There's two that are increasing in membership in the United States. What are they, if you had to guess? What might it be? The answer is, one, the Assemblies of God, Pentecostals, and two, the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, conservative Presbyterians. I will tell you that my experience has been, over the last few years, as I've looked at uh, younger people, uh, those in college age specifically and in their 20s, and I've looked at them and how those of them who kept their faith, where they ended up, you could see that was motivating them was the things that it seems like some of our brothers and, our, and sisters and our, our Pentecostal and Presbyterian denominations are getting right. If you've ever been in a Pentecostal environment, you know that there's a deep emphasis on the presence of God, that He is going to move. If you've ever been in a Presbyterian, a healthy Presbyterian environment, you know that there is uh, an emphasis on re- getting r- rid of the, the frills and, and the true orthodox faith of God. Something Justine and I have witnessed when we were back in California was, was students not wanting the, the fog machines, <laughs> not, wanting the, not, not wanting the hype, but simply wanting true historic Christianity, but also wanting God to be present in our midst and to do something do something. And I would just ask us, do we have that kind of mindset to go, Lord, I don't want to just, man, I want you, I want to read about you in your book, but like, I don't want to close it and then not experience you the rest of the day. I remember hearing a pastor, I've been in such a, 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 a Bible word environment, which is, you're never going to hear me complain about that. But that did not talk about the Holy Spirit. And I heard this pastor talking about the necessity of having an encounter with God. Like you experience, like you prayed and then he answered and you go, what in the world is happening? Do you, is, that, is that your experience? My prayer for us is that we wouldn't separate the mind from the heart. That we wouldn't be the kind of people that, that are people only of the book, divorced from the Holy Spirit. You need both. You need the breath of God, the wind of God, and the word of God together. And so my prayer for us is that we care about the presence of the Spirit. Here's someone asking me, what's your New Year's resolution, Aaron? And it's, it's really boring. It's to take prayer more seriously than I have in the past. I was reminded of something that happened to me a few years ago where I was dealing with a challenge that was in my life, and I said, Lord, it seems like 
I am not going to have peace unless I am daily surrendering this issue to you every single day. I, I, like, if I miss a day, I'm, I'm going to be the most anxious person on the planet. So I need to give it to you. And so I made a commitment. This lasted for months and months and months and months. Just praying and surrendering. Man, you do that every single day. One issue, just going, going in the paint with that every single time. It's going to change who you are. And recently I was convicted because the Lord was like, did you think that you were supposed to stop that practice? That you only did that for one, one thing that was going on in your life? That you should just say, I prayed really hard in that season of life and now I've graduated to whatever you're doing now. Oh, church, that we would not be the kind of people that forget to pray. Whatever your New Year's resolution is. Again, last time, I promise. Thinking of my friend Palmer showing up on Wednesday nights to our prayer meetings, and he would just look at me and go, oh, we just must pray. We need to pray. And I just hold right on to that going, man, I want to look at the older people in my life who have lived faithful lives for so long, and what were they doing? They were praying. Let us look at the example of those who, are, who have come before us and not forget to pray. Pray for the presence of God to do something. And then lastly, My prayer for us is that we would not lose the perspective of the importance of knowing who the creator is in our lives. Genesis 1-1, as we talked about this morning, tells us about the supremacy of God over creation. The supremacy of God to choose how we will identify. That Jesus must be both our savior and our Lord. There's so much talk in our world right now about the need to self-identify. And yet Jesus provides us with our true identity. The thing that really gets me about Genesis is how much it parallels Revelation, how the whole thing bookends itself. It begins in a garden, it ends in a garden. It begins here with creation, and it ends with a recreation. And so let me now end by bringing it down to earth for you at the beginning of this year. I do not know what 2023 looked like for you. I know it looked like for, for many of you, but not for, not for all of us. And maybe you're just happy to put that year in the rearview mirror. But as you look to what's before you, don't forget those words that our Lord says, behold, I am making all things new. If your God is the one who can create everything, isn't he capable of bringing recreation, redemption, people who are born again, all of those kinds of things into your life? Behold, I am making all things new. Do not lose sight of his power. If that's what he can do in Genesis 1, what he can do in your own life. The power of God is what gets me day by day to not let it only stay on the page, but get into my heart. The Lord can do this for Aaron as well as he, could, as he has done it in the past. To bring recreation, renewal, and redemption. So today is the introduction to 2024 for us. It's the introduction to what we have before us. The creator and his canvas. Next week, we begin to put color on the canvas. And I want to encourage you with these last words. Read Genesis 1 through 3 this week and get it in you. Because our elders met on Monday... Wednesday, I can't remember, 
we met on Wednesday, and one of the things that one of our brothers shared with us was that we need to be ready. We will talk about things in the coming weeks that will challenge what the culture has to say, as if we haven't already been doing that, but we will continue to do that. I want to challenge you to have hope for the joy that is set before you, that God may be about to move, but remember that your enemy is roaring like a lion and he seeks to devour us, to bring disunity into our midst, to set us against one another, to bring confusion from the outside, to bring in the lies of the enemy. And this is why we are going back to the basics and go, Lord, let us keep the main things the main thing. Let us rely on the power of your Holy Spirit and we will be able to defeat the evil one. So be on guard, friends. Watch yourself. But let us also trust in one who is powerful and has already defeated the enemy. And he will defeat the enemy fully. And we will live with him in this new creation. But until then, let's pray. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com. Or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.